Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Great to have you with us this morning. Lots happening in the life of the church, as Nick shared, 120 of our young adults uh, just encountering God this weekend, which is super exciting, but they're often the ones who yell back at me, which means you guys have a responsibility today to, to fill that role. Um, so bring that on. We're in the book of Haggai. We're in our all-in series. I love what Nick said in prayer this morning. He said, it's not a series, it's a call. It's a kingdom call, a call to be all in, to have our lives devoted and set apart for Him. And I love that idea. This is what we're in, this season, this call of God to say, hey, would you come all in? Would you come all in? And in your time, in your talent, in your treasure, would you give me your life and let me use your life to do what I'm calling you to do? And so we are in the book of Haggai this morning. We're reading from verse 1 through 9. And I'm going to read from the ESV today. Yes. Yes, got the big birther out. Not the little one. Uh, context for those of you who missed last week, the, uh, the Jewish people have been in exile. They've been, they were overthrown. They were in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Persia has overthrown Babylon. King Cyrus has come in and he's issued an edict that the people of Israel could return to Jerusalem. And so they've returned to Jerusalem and they immediately set about with a very simple task, which firstly was to repair the altar of the Lord so that they could worship the Lord through the sacrifices and engage in the the religious feasts that they'd been missing for 70 years of their life. And then to rebuild the temple of God, the, the house of worship. And they got to the foundation, as Nick talked about last week, and then they stopped. Uh, And then the Haggai comes with this word of consider your ways. Consider your ways. Nick spoke about it being a prickly word, a word that kind of like gets in there and grates at you. But sometimes that's what we need in life, don't we? Consider your ways. We're building your own houses while the house of the Lord remains in ruins. A powerful word. And today we come to chapter two in the first verse. And it says this, in the seventh month, On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant people of Israel, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Underline that. O Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, (laughs) as Nick said last week, declares the Lord. Be strong. Be strong, O Joshua. Everyone say, be strong. Son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong. Someone say, be strong. All you people of the land, the leader, the spiritual leader, All the people of the land, be strong, declares the Lord. Work, underline that, highlight that. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. Be strong, be strong, be strong, work. Why? For I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts. How many of you are like, this is a different word from chapter one? Yeah? Chapter one, a little prickly. Consider your ways. What the heck are you doing? Pull your finger out and get on with it. Chapter two, be strong, be strong, be strong. I'm with you, fear not. Interesting. That's where you go, "Mm, 
What's going on here? For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, bless your word. Speak now, your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there's six types of questions we can ask in the world. They are who, what, when, where, how and why. Six types of questions. Who, what, when, where, how and why. And I have a, really it's a deep-seated belief that the people who are going to leave, uh, I guess, their imprint on the earth, the people who are going to make a mark on the earth are the people who are prepared not just to ask the who, what, when and where, but who are prepared to ask the how and the whys. That there's something about this desire to know more deeply that will stir something in us to act in a way that will actually impact the need. Does that make sense? So this is something that I feel really deeply about and something that I've, we have really fostered in our children. Uh, and I used to foster as a teacher. I'd say it to my students all the time. I'd be like, there are no dumb questions. There's no such thing as a dumb question. That's a great principle, and until you have children that are two years old, really buying into that. <laughs> and you're encouraging them to ask the, the hows and the whys, and it's great. But every now and then when you're sitting at the traffic lights and the, the little voice from the back of the seat comes in and says, firstly, what's, what's that? And you say, well, that's, that's a traffic light. And they're like, why? And you're like, well, how do I explain that? And so then you try and explain that. And as soon as you explain that, well, it's, it's a system set up by the government to reduce the risk on the road so that we lower injury rates and insurance prices can drop and all these sorts of things. And then you get to the end of that explanation and the two or three-year-old in the back seat then says, why? <laughs> and after a while, you, you just you explain again and then it's how and then it's why and then it's how and after about 15 minutes you just say, look at that over there. <laughs> it's a bird, look. Like it's a great thing to foster that inquisitive spirit. <laughs> but sometimes we get tired of asking it and so we go back to the closed questions because it's easier. We go back to the, the who, what, when, where and stay there because it's easier. It's less time consuming. It doesn't challenge us. But I think as, as especially as the people of God, we have to be a people who are prepared to ask the hows and the whys. And so when we come to a passage like Haggai 2 and Haggai 1, actually that, that whole idea that these people of God came back from exile with such zeal and such passion, I think sometimes because we just focus on the closed question, we actually do the people of God here a little disservice because we don't ask the how or the why. Why did they stop building? Like if they came back with such zeal to start with and they built the altar of the Lord and they went about Worshipping, and they set straight about to build the foundation. It seems odd that they would just stop, doesn't it? And we should ask the question, why? Why did they stop building? And if all you read is Haggai, you're not going to find an answer to that. But Bible readers, you would know that if you read a little more deeply and a little bit more widely, what you're going to discover is that the Bible commentates itself. And so if you want to read a commentary on the book of Haggai, the best place to go is the book of Ezra. Because Ezra explains what's going on in the book of Haggai. So come with me, just come along for a little journey here. And we are going to pop on down next to Ezra chapter 4. 
And as we get to Ezra chapter four, the focus of what we're gonna sit on here, now I've got to find Ezra in my big Bible and that's gonna be fun. Really today, I just wanna look at a couple of questions, okay? A couple of questions, which is simply the, why did they stop and why did they start? Why did they stop and why did they start? Laura, can you just put it up there? Because I'm not going to find it in that. Ezra 4, verse 4 to 6. So they've come back from exile. They've built the foundation of the temple. And then we read this. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsellors, which means lawyers, against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And we know that they started rebuilding at the beginning, the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasa, also known as Artaxerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And if you keep reading that whole chapter, what you discover is they wrote to King Artaxerxes and they said, the Jewish people have a history and a reputation of being a rebellious people. And you don't want them to build the house of God because the moment they build the house of God, they're gonna become strong. Look at their ancient kings, David and Solomon. They're gonna build a wall. They're not gonna pay you taxes. In fact, they might even rise up and under the power of their God come against you and you're gonna be in a whole lot of trouble. So they wrote to Artaxerxes and Artaxerxes freaked out. He was like, tell them to stop. They're not allowed to build. And so there was all this oppression coming against the people of God who've just come out of exile with all this excitement to build and then a, a command by the king of the entire Persian empire that said, you must cease building. So they stopped. Why does anyone start passionate about the things of God and then time goes on and then you look at their life and you go, hang on, that's not, that's not what, where you were at. Why does anyone stop? It's because stuff gets in the way. For the people of Judah, what got in the way? Well, there was discouragement. There was attack. There was genuine persecution. There was disillusionment. Like they had this zeal and this fire that came upon them. And then before they knew it, there's all this work going against them saying, you can't do this. And here's what happens, church. And here's what happens still today. It's human nature. Discouragement and disillusionment and often persecution, if we don't press through, will often end up in generational apathy. What do I mean by that? 16 years 16 years, the temple work stopped. 16 years is old enough for someone who had young children, for those children to now be grown up. And those children have spent their days watching their parents not do the very thing that God commanded them to do. Or it's gonna get a little bit pointed here. <laughs> Friends, Parents and people who are future parents. Children, Nick preached on this last week around excuses. Children don't consider your excuses. They don't ask why of your excuses. What they're watching is your ways. And what happens is, is when we allow discouragement, when we allow confusion, when we allow hurt, when we allow persecution, when we allow the things that might be very genuine at the time. It's very genuine for them to stop when the king of the empire commands them to stop. We can have a thousand reasons why a heart for the kingdom goes missing over time, but our children don't see the excuses. They don't see the why. They're just watching your ways. And so we, as the this generation 
actually have a mandate from God to lead by example. We can't just lead with our words. We can't just be hearers of the Word. We must be doers of the Word because our children, let's be honest, they're not listening a whole lot to our words. They are, but a lot of it's... Or is that just me? Do the dishes. Like you follow example, are you with me? I know for me, I'm so fortunate and blessed. I grew up with parents who they didn't have to tell me that they loved God. Their very actions showed me that they loved God. Literally in everything that they did. In the way that they loved us, in the way that they provided for us. But I tell you what, when it came, like they're on, they were serving in church. If a pew need moving, they were moving that pew because that's where I was in the old wooden pew church. If someone needed help, they were there. If someone was needed a place to stay, there was a room in our house where they could stay. If, if there was an opportunity for young adults just to come and gather in their house, even if they had to get up at six o'clock the next morning to go to work, we were gonna stay up till 2 a.m. Our house was open because they wanted to see and foster the kingdom work of God. And I'm blessed to have had parents who just said, hey, watch our ways. Watch what we do with our lives because our lives will demonstrate kingdom initiative. And what happened for the people of Jerusalem, what happened for the people of Israel as they came back, there was this entire generational gap where the kingdom of God lost priority. It was no longer first. It was no longer something that they were pressing into, the kingdom work, the kingdom call of God. And it resulted in this generation rising up that knew nothing of Him. How do we expect the next generation to love and follow Jesus if we say, well, I follow Jesus in my heart, but there is no action to demonstrate it? You say you have faith. What does the book of James say? The evidence of faith is that I will do something. If I truly believe in something, my life will embody that belief. Otherwise, I don't actually believe it. If I say I hate mangoes, but I'm always eating mangoes, I don't hate them. I can say it as much as I want to, but the evidence of my life says that's not true. Are you with me? And this this generation can say, we love God, our heart is for God. But the evidence of their life was that that's not true. And it led to generational apathy. It's awfully quiet in this Baptist church. (laughs) There's a generational apathy that comes about through a very legitimate obstacle. And we can allow so many things to get in the way. Someone can say something that's really hurtful to us. And I'm not playing that down. We can. People hurt people in churches. It happens because we're human. And we're flawed, and we can allow that to get in and become this seed that festers and grows and builds bitterness, and we walk away from the living God. I've got a, a dear friend who did a horrible thing as a leader in the church, and he'll be the first to admit it. And so many people walked away from Jesus. And I would say to those guys, now he's very this leader's very repentant, but I'd say to these guys, Jesus didn't hurt you, he did. Jesus is consistent and true. Don't allow a human being to get in the way of the kingdom and upward call of God. And so it leads to this this generational apathy, which is why Haggai comes and brings firstly a sharp rebuke, but it is also why Haggai then comes and after the sharp rebuke says, be strong, Be strong, be strong, do not fear. Why? Because God, I am with you. My covenant that I made when I brought you out of Egypt is still true because that's what a covenant is. It endures and it's not changing. He goes, that covenant that I made is still gonna come to pass. I'm not gonna forget you because you've forgotten me. When you are unfaithful, guess what? I'm gonna remain faithful. 
because that's my nature and I'm going to keep calling you and keep coming to you and keep drawing you to myself and keep inviting you to step into the very thing you were created to do and into the very person you were created to be. I will never give up on you. That's the call of God. So be strong and don't fear. Don't fear these guys. I've got you and I'm with you. According to Exodus 19. So we better go to Exodus 19. Are you with me? We're about to jump around the Scripture and I'm gonna get really excited in a minute. In Exodus 19, what is the covenant? Let's just read from verse three to six. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. Sounds a little bit like Haggai. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Friends, the covenant that God made is I'm in charge and you shall be a kingdom of priests. Now, fascinatingly, as you follow Israel's story, they did become a kingdom and they had a kingdom that had priests, but the whole nation never became priests. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests. But what happened when Mount Sinai, when God came, He was like, the people were like, oh, no, you're too much for us. Speak to Him, speak to Moses. He can tell us what to do. And so through all of that, Moses goes up into the presence of God. God actually gives him a vision of heaven, heavenly worship. And then he gets a blueprint. He's like, oh, so how do I take that and bring that to earth? How do I take this incredible vision of heaven and bring it to earth? And so he has a blueprint and they build the tabernacle. And then the law comes and there's the priesthood who intercede on behalf of God and the people, but that's not what they were created to be. They were created to be a kingdom of priests that all of them would enter into the presence of God. All of them. They wouldn't need a human being to intercede that they were called just like the Garden of Eden to be in the presence of God. That was the covenant promise. And so from that time on until we're now in Haggai, we still don't see that covenant promise fulfilled. Is Israel a kingdom of priests at this point in time? Come on church, I know it's Sunday morning, we're about to do some Bible study. Are they a kingdom of priests? No, they are a kingdom who have priests, but they are not yet what they have been called and created to be, which means there is a covenant promise that is yet to be fulfilled. Amen? There is a covenant promise that is yet to be fulfilled. And so when Haggai comes and he says, be strong, be strong, be strong, fear not, for I am with you according to my covenant promise, all of a sudden a little bell goes off in their minds. They're reminded of a promise that is going to fulfil a future reality. There is a future reality that is going to come if they walk according to the covenant Command of Christ or of God. You with me? If you walk according to my promise, if you, walk, if you obey me, if you follow me, you will walk in this covenant promise. It's awesome. And it triggers something in them. Because the next question is, why did they obey? Because so often in, in the Bible, when a prophet comes, the people ignore them, don't they? And what I love about this is the people are like, oh, yep, right, let's get on with it. (laughs) They just get on with the work. Why? Because they've caught a vision of the future reality. They see the seed. They understand. Like there's this... um, They're passionate for the things of God. They've been discouraged. They've been displaced. They've 
They've been hurting. There's a whole lot that's gone on and all they needed was some, that encouragement. Sometimes we have a harsh word, but sometimes we just need encouragement to say, hey, remember, remember who He is. Remember His promise and get up and be strong. Friends, you can be strong because God's promises are sure. You can be strong in Him because His promises are sure. In Christ, all God's promises are yes and amen. He gives them a vision of a future reality, a reality that will come to pass, that God will bring to fulfilment in His time. And here's the thing. Some, many commentators, historians, theologians will say that 520 years later, this was fulfilled. They'll say that the building of the second temple, that Herod, King Herod came along and he redeveloped it. And, you know, he was with the whole Roman Empire thing. And so there was a whole lot of money that came in. So he brought the treasure. You know, the treasure is mine, money's mine. They'll say, rebuilt that. And Herod's actual desire, one of his spoken intents was that the glory would be greater than that of Solomon's. So they'll say, well, Herod redeveloped it and it became amazing. And then as Nick so beautifully shared last week, there's this moment where Jesus is presented and Simeon says, my eyes have seen the glory of God. And so they'll say that that's the fulfilment. And while I agree in part to that, I think there's more to this. I think this prophecy is actually two-pronged. I think there's that element to it, but what's been churning in me as I've read this is if it is fulfilled, why in Hebrews 12 does the author quote Haggai speaking of a future reality? How are we going with Bible study this morning, church? Let me read it to you from verse 22. The author of Hebrews, but you have come to... Uh, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Underline it, circle it, highlight it. The heavenly Jerusalem. Where did the tabernacle design come? A vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. Where did the temple come from? David had a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much, uh, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time, listen, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It's a quote from Haggai. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So what is this talking about? Yep, there's this moment where the second temple is improved and Jesus comes and the glory is greater in that way. But I think he's also talking about actually something much greater. Isaiah 66 tells us that heaven is God's home and the earth is His footstool. And the fact that the tabernacle and the temple, those designs and blueprints came from a vision of the heavenly reality. I think the promise of Haggai is actually pointing to the future reality when what is in heaven will be eternally on the earth. I think he's reminding us that there will be a day when heaven will come to earth, when the promise of God will be fulfilled, when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. 
It will all be washed away and all that will remain is the Kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I think he's talking about a wonderful future reality and he's saying in light of that future reality, be strong. Be strong. Don't fear. Work. Because I'm with you. Work. Because I'm with you. And this, oh, this has so stirred me up because I've started thinking, okay, Haggai's time, Haggai's time. What did the heavenly Jerusalem look like? And then what does the heavenly Jerusalem look like for us now? Why can we be strong? How does this apply to us today? Why can we be strong? Why should we not fear? Oh, get ready. And so you go to us. There's these two awesome images in Scripture, right? And there's one from Isaiah, Isaiah 6, where Isaiah actually, he also went up and saw the heavenly Jerusalem. And he explains what he saw. And then there's another person who saw the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's a guy called John. And you see that in Revelation 4 and 5. And you realise that Isaiah's vision, which was 740 BC, a couple of hundred years before Haggai, Isaiah's vision, 740 BC, is, is the same but different. It's like Aldi. to John's vision in Revelation 4, 5. 740 BC, there's a vision. 92 AD, there's a vision. And I've got to thank Pastor and Scholar Daryl Johnson from Canada who showed me this. It's so cool. Look at this. I want to suggest to you, get ready, something happened between 740 BC and 92 AD, something happened that changed something in heaven. Now, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're gonna get there. Watch this. Can I I just read a bunch of Scripture? Is this all right? How are we going? We good? Okay, Isaiah 6, 740 BC. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two, He covered His face. With two, He covered His feet. And with two, He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, glory. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Jump over to Revelation 4 and 5. We're going to read a lot of Scripture, but I just want you to, even if you just close your eyes and let this wash over you or follow along if you need that, don't get distracted. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. Oh Lord, would you do that for us? And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders can't help but they fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honour and power for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between, the best translation for that is in the middle. And in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made for them a kingdom of priests. Oh, a kingdom of priests. You've made for them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Awesome. Here's the thing that has just captivated me this week. 740 BC, a vision of heaven. 92 AD, a vision of heaven. A prophecy that the latter glory would exceed the former, knowing that, yes, there is the temple, there is the shadow of the heavenly Jerusalem on the earth. Just maybe he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem and just maybe something has changed in heaven that makes the latter glory that will come on earth greater than the former glory. Something happened between 740 BC and 92 AD. And when you look at what is the same in both those visions, there is a throne and there is one seated on it. Church, I Googled all the empires to have risen and fall in the history of the world. I Googled that this week. I gave up counting. <laughs> 
There are so many. Over thousands of years, empire has risen and empire has fallen, risen and fallen, risen and fallen. Even the empires that no one thought could ever be destroyed like Rome has risen and it has fallen. And yet in the heavenly Jerusalem, there is a throne church. And that throne is occupied, church. Come on, somebody. That throne is occupied. We need not fear the authorities of the earth, though they might come and they might rage against the kingdom. There is one who is seated on a throne. And that throne is going to stand for all of eternity. There is one throne and all other thrones will bow before it. There is a throne in heaven. Both images, there is a throne. Both images, what is the cry? Holy. The one who sits upon the throne is holy. He is pure. He is without fault. He is perfect in every single way. Therefore, we can trust Him. Holy is the cry. That is the cry of Heaven. There are six winged creatures that attend the throne in both images. So we see a throne. We see a throne that is occupied. We see a cry of holy because that's who God is. And we see these six winged creatures that surround the throne. But then there are some differences. You ready? What are the differences? Well, in 92 AD, there is a throne that is at the centre, but it actually has 24 other thrones around it. They're not competing thrones. Those thrones, it says they lay their crowns at His feet. 24 others. That's a picture of Israel and the church, 12 and 12. 12 tribes, 12 disciples, 24 thrones. It is a picture of a kingdom of priests that encircle the throne and give Him glory. It wasn't there in 740 AD. It is there in 92, 740 BC. It is there in 92 AD. Something has happened in heaven. Secondly, what you see, something has happened to the creatures. In 740 BC, the creatures cover their eyes. In 92 AD, the creatures are full of eyes. I don't really understand that. But what I do know is something has happened that enables the creatures to behold holiness. Whereas before, the eyes are covered and it's, it's holy, holy, holy. Now it's, I've got so many eyes because I, can, I, I need all the eyes as if it is to see the, the magnitude of who you are. Something has happened that has enabled creatures to behold holiness. There is one on the throne. But in 92 AD, it says that in the middle of the throne, in the middle of the throne, there is what? A lamb. In the middle, not distinct, but one with. If you are in the middle, you are one with the one who sits on the throne. This is a picture of the Son of God, the triune Son of God. And something has happened where that one has become a lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah has become the lamb that was slain. He is in the middle of the throne for all of eternity. Church, something has happened in heaven where God has sent His one and only Son to suffer and die and He has risen and ascended. But as He ascends, He is a lamb. He is the only one in heaven who has scars. We will rise in our resurrected bodies perfected. He will have scars for all of eternity. There is a lamb in the centre of the throne and that lamb enables the seraphim to behold holiness. But what's more, it changes the cry. 
Because the cry of the creatures, the cry of the, the creature was, of, of, of Isaiah was, woe! The cry of the elders, the, the 24 thrones is, worthy! Do you see it? Whereas before the idea of beholding and being in relationship with God was, whoa, I can't be here, you're too great. It's the same cry that Israel had when God came on the mountain. Whoa, we don't, we can't, you're too holy. Because of the lamb that's in the middle of the throne, now we can all behold His beauty and His glory and we can cry worthy. And there's the rainbow and glass and all this other gear going on. Friends, I wanna suggest to you that what this prophecy is speaking of is the heavenly reality that the latter glory, the fact that Christ has come and done what He has accomplished, heaven looks a little different. The latter glory is greater than the former glory and that latter glory will come on the earth for all who are found in Him. And therefore... We can be strong. Therefore, we need not fear. Therefore, we can work. Because He's going to shake everything. And the latter glory that He's invited us into to be a kingdom of priests is greater than the former. Ben, you can come up and we're going to close church. The future reality is fixed. The work is finished. It is done. And we see the glimpse of it in heaven. We see glimpses of it on the earth and we're praying that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It is done. But it's also still to come. And so when Jesus says, hey, go make disciples, build my kingdom, we can be strong, we can be strong, we can be strong, and we need not fear because He is with us. <laughs> and because He has done it. And because the latter glory is greater than the former glory. And there is in store for us a crown of righteousness that we're going to get to lay at His feet. Why would we allow silly distractions, <laughs> principalities and powers? Why would we allow things to say, you can't do the work I've called you to it's nonsense. Be strong. Be strong. Do not fear. Work. Be strong. Do not fear. Work. Why? Because I'm with you. I, the one who did all of this, who has accomplished all of this, am with you. And I'm making you a kingdom of priests, so be strong. Do not fear and work. It's that verse, what can man do to you? We can go all in, church. Because the latter glory is greater than the former glory. because the covenant is fixed and secure in Christ and because heaven is going to come to earth <laughs> and even now is coming He is with us by His Spirit through His Word amongst His people so let's be strong Let's not be afraid. And let's work. That the world might know that there is a king who is seated on the throne, high and exalted, 
is holy. But oh, He is worthy (laughs) of our praise. Oh, He is worthy. Because He has drawn us near, not cast us out. He has drawn us near. That we might behold His holiness, that we might enter His throne room with boldness to receive mercy in our time of need. Boldness. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord. Let's stand to our feet. And we're going to praise Him. We're going to sing worthy. Jesus, we praise You. Jesus, we praise You. Jesus, we declare worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and power and honour and glory. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Thank You that Your covenant is fixed and secure and it is done. Thank You that You have secured the latter glory so much greater than the former, that You are and have made us a kingdom of priests to our God, that we need not fear, but we can be strong. So Lord, fill us now with your spirit that we might get on with the work of declaring this kingdom reality to the world. That the eyes of many would be opened to all that you have accomplished. That people who are trapped in darkness would walk in glorious light. Father, forgive us when we have allowed distractions to get in the way. When we have allowed disillusionment to get in the way. When we have allowed life to get in the way and take our eyes off why we're here. We just put you back on the throne of our lives where you belong take off our crowns and we lay them at your feet. We worship you. We praise you. And we say, here we are, Lord. Send us. If Isaiah said, here I am, send me, how much more should we, having seen your glory, say, here am I, send me. So we give you our hands and we give you our feet, we give you our hearts, our minds, our breath. Here we are, Lord. Send us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. We're going to worship the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.